We've now come to the final episode of Series 1 of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson going step by step, i.e. canto by canto, through Dante's Inferno. We're at the 34th and final canto in which Dante and Virgil arrive at the very bottom of hell, the centre of the earth, and then rise up again to the fresh air and the stars. Canto 33 ended after Dante discovered the horrible detail that Fra Alberigo's cold, calculated murder of his relations, who were also his dinner guests, resulted in his ruined soul immediately leaving his body and descending down here to the ninth circle of hell. The soul was frozen in eternal damnation, the equivalent of being so ruined it was just thrown out into the dustbin of the universe, but his body was still alive, controlled by a demon until it's time to perish. With that final encounter, all contact with others in hell has come to an end. There are no more named sinners. We'll see in a moment what Dante and Virgil encounter next on their way out. The canto opens with a line in Latin, Vexilla regis prodeunt inferni. It's Virgil who speaks this, which makes sense that the master of Latin should lapse into his own language. But what doesn't really make sense is that he's referring to a 6th century hymn written 500 years after he died. But then Virgil seems to know a lot more than we'd have expected. Look up ahead, Virgil says to Dante, and see what you can discern there. Dante looks, but it's like peering through a mist or at dusk and seeing dimly a windmill turning its sails. Is it a windmill then up ahead? Dante can't quite tell, but he certainly can feel the wind growing stronger, and he shelters himself behind Virgil. And, and now Dante can get his bearings. He, he is still on the ice, but there are no longer any heads sticking up. No, the, the bodies here are completely submerged under the ice, as though they were just haphazardly dumped there. Some stretched out face up, some face down, some erect under the ice, and some upside down. Oh, and some bent over double, faces next to their toes. They've now entered the fourth region of Cositus, Judeca, the final worst region of hell, reserved for those who betrayed their lords or benefactors. But we learn nothing about any of them. No names, no stories. They deserve none of these, just complete oblivion. Dante spends only five lines on them before moving on. And so they proceed further, in silence, until Virgil steps aside to let Dante see what is ahead. Echo dite, Virgil says, Behold this, that is, Lucifer, or Satan. You'll need all your courage here. And so here is Dante, face to face with the devil himself. First we get Dante's feelings, and then a description of what he sees. He feels faint and frozen to the spot, more than he could possibly express. He's moved beyond words now, or dependent only on paradox, I did not die, he says, but I also wasn't alive. And now for Satan, frozen into the ice, which covers him from the waist down. And he's enormous. 
<laughs> requiring a complex image to explain just how huge. I am closer to the size of a giant, Dante says, than a giant is to one of his arms. From this you can judge the kind of size I'm talking about. Dorothy Sayers reckons this would mean he is 1,000 to 1,500 feet tall, 300 to 345 meters. Hollander makes it about 2,000 feet tall, 600 meters. But Dante gives us no precise measurements, nor do we really need them. Picturing what 2,000 feet tall would mean is beyond my imaginative abilities anyway. And besides his unimaginable size, he is also hideous-looking. With amazement, Dante sees that Satan has one head but three faces, the one facing front being red, the one on the right a light yellow, and the other one black. And each face is matched with a pair of wings, larger than the largest sails at sea, and not, not the beautiful angel wings he once had, but now ruined into featherless wings like bats. So three sets of wings on three sides of his body, in continual motion, sending out the freezing wind in three different directions. There are three pairs of eyes, constantly weeping, the tears dribbling down his three chins, mixed with bloody saliva. Bloody because hanging out of each mouth is a figure which he is constantly chewing on, at the same time as his claws are ripping the exposed flesh. The soul condemned to the middle spot is Judas, with his head inside Satan's mouth and his feet sticking out. The other two are the other way around, and that's some tiny relief anyway. They are the assassins of Julius Caesar, Brutus, and Cassius. We can imagine Dante standing there, frozen in horror as he looks on, and as Virgil explains who these figures are. But it's getting late, Virgil says. Night is falling. It's time to leave. Tutto avem veduto. We have seen it all. Let's get out of here. And so how do they leave this place? Dante puts his arms around Virgil's neck, and when it's the right moment to avoid the wing's sweeping movement, Virgil grabs a tuft of Satan's hairy flank and climbs down, one tuft of pelt after another, down and down through the narrow space between the devil's thighs and the ice. When they get as far as the hips, Virgil unexpectedly turns around and, instead of climbing down, starts climbing up. Are, are they going back up there into hell? Hang on, Dante, Virgil says, almost out of breath from the exertion. This is the way we have to climb out of this evil place. Finally they come to a little opening in the rock where Virgil sets Dante down and then climbs up on the ledge himself. Free to look around for a moment, Dante looks up, presumably for a last glance at that enormous figure of Satan up there, but what is his surprise to see not that huge torso and triple-faced head, but Satan's two legs up above them. He's utterly confused, as we might be if we failed to realize that they had passed the center of the earth, and the pull of gravity has been reversed. They are now, without having changed direction, climbing up towards the outer air. 
Up and get going, Virgil says. We have a long, hard way to pass through, and the sun is high up in the sky. Wait, says Dante. Can you just answer some of the questions that are puzzling me, please? Uh, what's happened to the ice? And, and why is this figure upside down now? And why is the sun up in the sky when you said not that long ago that it was getting to be nighttime? And Virgil explains the point I've just mentioned about moving through the center of the earth, the center of gravity. And of course, coming up on the opposite side of the earth, it's daylight there where it had been night in the other hemisphere. And he explains something further. When Lucifer fell from heaven after his defeated attempt to overthrow God, he landed on earth in the southern hemisphere. It's a complicated explanation, but the main point for us is that a great portion of the earth fled from the presence of Satan, or perhaps fled, as Virgil says, fled upwards to the surface in the southern hemisphere to form a, a huge mountain, which we will soon discover is the mountain of purgatory. And so, as we come to the end of the Inferno, we get glimpses ahead to the second canticle, the Purgatorio. Explanation over. Time to get moving. Dante and Virgil can hear the trickle of water and find the narrow course of a stream pouring down from the upper world. They climb up along the channel of that stream, a, a long journey upwards, no resting, Virgil first, Dante behind him, and finally, way up there in an opening, they can see what? Yes, the sky, the night sky. They've been climbing the whole of the day. And at last, once again, the stars. This part of the journey is over, and so is the canto, and so is the inferno. Deo gratias. The canto follows into two main sections. First, the journey through the region of Judeca, ending with the vision of Lucifer. And second, the journey upwards, ending with the vision of the stars. The first part is divided into the account, short as it is, of the traitors iced here, and then the description of Satan himself and his functionary activities. The second section includes both the climbing and the explanation of what it has meant to move upwards from the center of the earth. The canto begins with an opening line in Latin, Vexilla regis prodeunt inferni, the banners of the king of hell advance, an adaptation of a Palm Sunday hymn, the royal banners forward go, with the addition of that final word, inferni. It's not King Jesus who advances, but the king of the inferno. So Virgil has turned the lines around, an infernal rather than a divine hymn. Vexilla means banners, but what banners are here? On Palm Sunday, the banners are the palms, waved by those escorting Jesus into Jerusalem. But here, like everything else, the meaning is perverted. The banners are actually the wings of Satan. And they don't advance, they just go round and round, not getting anywhere. The meaning, as well as the wording, has been turned around, since it's not really the king of the inferno who advances, he is static. It's Dante who advances towards him. Turning around, in the sense of words, meanings, actions, and the soul, is going to be the theme of this canto, more generally, the movement of turning us around from hell to the upper world, from damnation to salvation, from death to to new life. 
The wings are compared to a windmill, but while a windmill receives wind and transforms it into productive energy, suggesting the way we can receive the spirit to produce good works, these satanic sails, on the other hand, create their own wind, producing nothing. Well, not quite nothing. They produce the wind that freezes the water and keeps it frozen. So Satan is reduced to nothing more here than a functionary, or worse, just a machine, to keep the floor of hell hatefully cold and frozen. As they get closer to those wings, the wind grows stronger and colder. Dante has to shelter behind Virgil for protection. But, but we might wonder, but does Virgil have a substantial body that can actually block the wind? By the physics of this region of the shades of the dead, he should be insubstantial. Wind would pass right through him. He doesn't seem affected by the wind, and yet he can block it from blowing on Dante. It doesn't make consistent sense. Well, here's another of the few moments when, if we are so inclined, we can point to a mistake in the poem. But these, as Samuel Johnson said in another context, are the petty cavils of petty minds. When Virgil steps aside so that Dante can finally get a view of this king of hell, Dante describes himself as not dead and yet not alive either. Here's that in-between spot, the pivot required for a turnaround, the death that is not a death, the life that is not yet fully alive. This, we might say, is the caterpillar in the cocoon, that moment of stasis, of unknowing, before breaking out into a transformed life. And <laughs> do we have to comment on the size of Satan? In the myths, he was once, as Lucifer, the most beautiful of the angels of heaven. But his pride drove him to strive against God, and now here he is, a ruined angel, obsessively clawing and chewing the worst of the sinners, dribbling tears and blood endlessly. The sight of him is frightening, but what is notable is that he does not even acknowledge the presence of these newcomers. He seems to have no intelligence left at all, <laughs> more like a sign at a fun fair outside the house of horrors than like the biblical roaring lion roaming around, seeking whom to destroy. This can be surprising to many readers who are expecting the devil to be an active presence behind all this, with a hungry, evil manner, working by deceit to capture as many human souls as he can, tempting us to turn from the right path and follow him. But Dante is not really interested in the issue of temptation. As we have seen in all of the people we've encountered down here, what matters is not the way they were lured into incontinence, violence, or fraud, but just the very fact that they did commit these sins. Dante's not so much interested in what makes us sin. He wants to show us what our souls look like after we have consented to these evil actions. His premise is that once we actually see the true state of a soul engaged in these sins, and see how ugly and abhorrent this state is, then our intellect and our will may be disgusted, and we will not consent to these actions. Dante provides images we can carry with us to help us see our options and discern which are truly good and which evil, 
and in doing so, we can dismiss the temptation. Look, there are many other ways to depict this figure of the devil, some focusing on the acts of temptation, or on the presence of a devil within our heart or mind, some making fun of the devil, some glorifying the devil as a romantic, tragic hero representing our strong passions, and some presenting him as a somewhat harassed bureaucrat. Dante is under no obligation to cover all these aspects. That's why there are other writers around representing the subject in different ways. Now, what about those three figures in Satan's mouths? The presence of Judas is obvious, the great villain of the Passion tale, the one who betrayed Jesus, his friend, his leader, ultimately, though he didn't really know this, his Lord. And of course he has to be placed in the worst position in hell, in the devil's very mouth. And you can be sure, too, that the devil has bad breath, and Judas is stuck there, head in mouth. Yeah, I'm being a little facetious, but it doesn't feel too perverse to do so. Don't we feel rather remote from Judas? He's just a name here. There's nothing human left of him, just as there is nothing left of any of these other souls buried entirely in the ice. Judas's only action is to kick his legs, which are dangling outside the mouth, repeating the action of the Simoniacs, head first in their holes, those who betrayed the calling of the church, and perhaps also suggesting our final image of the devil, his legs just rising up out of the middle of the earth. We might find it harder to see why Brutus and Cassius are here. Where Judas represents betraying the spiritual leader, Brutus and Cassius represent betraying the secular leader, specifically Julius Caesar, whom they conspired to murder and did murder. To us, Caesar might be the villain, representing one of the great forces that destroyed the Roman Republic. But to Dante, Caesar was in the line of Aeneas, leading to the Roman Empire, which for Dante represented the only way to establish any hope of a peaceful political world in an age of factions and party bloodshed. Brutus and Cassius are heroic in our minds because they seemed to act on conscience, opposing the man they saw destroying their cherished democratic system. But Dante might have said, from hindsight, that their consciences misled them, especially since, as well as betraying their leader, they were also being ungrateful. Caesar had treated them very well. Murdering him was a sin on that account, too. And their presence here also reminds us how important the political situation was for Dante almost, but not quite, on the same level as the spiritual situation. We needn't go into the lesson in geography and physics that Virgil gives to Dante. What's more important is Virgil's great turnaround. He climbs down until he comes to the center of gravity and then turns around to continue in the same direction. Here is the climax of the inferno, the act of turning around. We turn ourselves around in order to continue in the same healing direction. What else is the point of this journey except repentance, which is the act of turning around? What else can you do after you've seen the utmost horror of the devil right before your eyes? As Virgil says, we have seen everything, that is, everything evil. And as he promised in the very first canto, the only way to rise up out of that dark woods is to go down first into the depths. 
this has been accomplished. Now we start the journey upwards, towards that divine light that Dante had been trying in vain to reach before Virgil appeared to him. But another significant line is Dante's fear, after Virgil turns around, that, oh no, they're headed back up into hell. Isn't that the way it often goes? Just when you think you're finally leaving some nightmare situation, things suddenly look like they're pushing right back into that nightmare. But they only look like it, a kind of temptation to test whether we still really want to make this radical shift. One final temptation to lose hope. The final line says, Then we came out to see again the stars. The final word is stelle, stars. It's the final line in the other two canticles too, Purgatorio and Paradiso. And that's a good place for us to end for now. We've concluded our journey through the Inferno and through Series 1 of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts. I'm going to take a little break, but I'll be back in September to take us up through the next part of the Divine Comedy, the Purgatorio. Meanwhile, you might also like to listen to Series 2 of the podcasts, which looks at Shakespeare's Tempest, another work about turning around. I want to thank you for following along with me, and I look forward to having your company again as we ascend the mountain of purification, a much brighter and more inspiring place to visit. See you then.